I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Part. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for stopping by. I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you'll benefit from some of the great knowledge we've got on this week's program. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. Thank you for continuing to support The Best in the World with Richard Part, And thank you for continuing to learn from the greatest sports stars on the planet. Yes, we speak to Olympic champions, world champions, world record holders and world number ones to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to be the very best in their sport and it's things that we can learn to help our everyday lives or our sporting ambitions at whatever level we're at and we've been very lucky on this program to have spoken to some incredible swimming stars And we've learned a lot from them and we definitely do that on this week's episode with the 2000 Sydney Olympics 200 metres butterfly champion. Yes, Misty Hyman is on the programme. Misty talks about a whole range of topics. Yes, we cover the usual things such as diet and nutrition and we talk about recovery and we talk about travel. But I think what you'll be really impressed to learn about today is how mathematics and science can help swimming. Yes, Misty talks all about her winning formula, which she learned as a swimmer herself. And now she is sharing with others as a coach. She's most recently been an assistant coach at Arizona State University, now taking a break. And I'll explain exactly why. Well, in fact, Misty explains exactly why she's taking a break on this podcast you do not want to miss this on this week's the best in the world with Richard Parr and one of the really important topics we cover is the mental side of sports and Missy talks about getting in the zone and the optimal state of mind and I think the optimal state of mind is definitely something which we want to include in our everyday life so don't miss that it's going to be on the best in the world with Rich Part in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to tell you about Audible. Audible is one of the leading supplies of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. Definitely go and give it a try because it is a product that I personally use. Yes, every month I go and download a new audiobook. Most recently, I've just finished The Chimp Paradox by Dr. Steve Peters, really talking about the mental mind. It's not necessarily for sports, but Sir Chris Hoy credits this book for helping him win Olympic gold medals. And there's definitely things that I can use to help improve my everyday life. And you know what? If you want to download that book for free, you can do so by going to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best and there you can get a 
30-day free trial, and that includes one free audiobook download. So perhaps it could be The Chimp Paradox. Why don't you give it a go, give it a try, let me know what you think at audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, it's time to learn from the very best. It's time to learn from the Olympic swimming champion, Misty Hyman. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Misty Hyman, Olympic swimming champion. Welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Of course, we're going to talk about your amazing career and your success at the 2000 Games. But for those that don't know, why don't you catch us up on what you're up to at the moment? Uh, Certainly. I've been a coach now for about 10 years and I travel around world giving uh, keynote and motivational speaking our speeches and um, and I was um, recently married and I'm expecting my first daughter um, in September so that's uh, what I'm most excited about of course oh congratulations that's a very exciting time thank you very much that answers what was going to be my next question of um, I noticed that you'd recently resigned from being a senior assistant coach at Arizona State University. And I think that answers itself what you're up to next. Uh, So so let's talk about your coaching career then for for a moment. Um, You've been doing it for a while now. Is there anything you've learned yourself from being a coach that you wish you'd known when you were competing? Oh, there are lots of things. (laughs) I think uh, I have a lot more respect for my coach, um, and, and I was very close with all of my coaches throughout my career, but um, I have an even bigger respect and more appreciation for how difficult it is to be a great coach um, now that I am one myself. So I think uh, you know, that's first and foremost. And, and the second thing is I've come to appreciate uh, my own gifts and talents even more. I think um, when I was an athlete, I, I would take them for granted somewhat and uh, not necessarily realize how, uh, you know, how in some ways my, my gifts were unique and in other ways not so neat, unique, but I think I took them for granted and uh, I certainly don't do that anymore as a coach. Mm, that's, that's interesting. And one of the things I've seen when you're advertising um, about some of the clinics that you do and things you put on social media, the one thing I noticed was you mentioned how math and, or I would say maths, but you would say math, math and science can improve your swimming um, without giving it away because I don't want you to give away what's exactly in your clinic. How exactly can it help? What are some of the things you're talking about here? Yes, well, I think I was very lucky in that my coach um, in Arizona where I grew up, who was my coach most of my career, um, he was very much uh, a pioneer in swimming and really used math and science to uh to look for ways to improve and that was one thing he instilled in me from a very young age was the idea that if you want to get better you have to change something and it's not always an obvious thing to change and a lot of times people keep doing the same things and just do them harder (laughs) you know thinking that if if I do more work and throw more work at it and I do it harder and I do it this way I'll get better but my coach was always strategically looking for ways we could what we could change to get better. And he used um, math to do that. Uh, one of the ways we did that, and certainly happy to share, it's um, you know, he basically um, broke down the swimming, the length of the pool um, into a math equation. So your time is made up of three parts, three variables, how long you spend underwater, how many strokes you take, 
and how fast you do those strokes. And, you know, a lot of uh, swimming coaches had looked at each of those pieces um, by themselves. But one of the things I think my coach did really well was how do those three fit together? And it's basically, you know, simple algebra. It's nothing. It's not rocket science. <laughs> but um, he stati- statistically looked at, um, you know, the, the best swimmers in the world. You know, statistically, what are their average stroke rates or, you know, the number of strokes they're taking in a, in a length or how long they're spending underwater. And so we were able to use this information and I used it from a very young age. I think, um, you know, as young as nine or 10 years old, uh, I was aware of my, my race evaluation, you know, those variables in my races. And my coach would tell me, okay, here's what we're training for. We're training so that you can take fewer strokes to get down the pool um, and keep the other variables relatively the same. And, um, and it gave a lot of purpose to my practicing and it allowed me to understand that, you know, all the things we're doing in terms of our stroke technique and in terms of the volume or the the yardage is what we call it in swimming. Well, here in the U S but the distances that you're going to get your, um, you know, to, to do the work, all of that is specific because, um, to change a certain part of that equation, because, uh, what I learned from him was that if, you know, doesn't matter how great a shape you're in or how hard you've worked if you're doing the same amount of time underwater the same number of strokes on the surface and at the same stroke rate or what we call tempo and swimming at the same rate um you know if that all stays the same then your time is going to be the same no matter if you're stronger or your stroke looks better and so it really gave um kind of a focused purpose and a way for us to evaluate um our swimming and our races and then to um, structure our training that way and i think um the other thing that I really liked about it was that it took some of the emotion out of um, out of the races in the sense that we could objectively evaluate, um, you know, whether it was you know, a good or a bad race wasn't necessarily the question. It was like, well, where where could we have improved or where is the opportunity for improvement? Or if this race wasn't what we expected, it wasn't that it was a bad swim. It was just maybe that that last length you had three extra strokes because of, you know, and then we could look at maybe why that was and say, okay, well, next time let's, let's train between now and the next competition to change that rather than saying, oh gosh, we worked so hard and that was a terrible race <laughs> and not knowing why we were able to objectively look at the numbers and, uh, yeah, and, and emotion has an important place in sport for sure. And that's a big part of, you know, success as an athlete. But I think being able to evaluate based on some objective numbers gave us a really valuable tool uh, and useful tool to really focus our training very specifically. Mm. And that all comes back to say the the ten thousand hour rule, where they say, "All right, you've got to do ten thousand hours to be great at anything." But obviously, you need those improvements, and I guess that stops people from just doing the same, the the wrong thing, and continuously doing it wrong. And it gets to measure it. That, that's really interesting. So yes, absolutely. And- <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah, so uh, that's what you learned from your coach uh, growing up and, and you've brought it into your coaching career. And of course, you're working with Bob Bowman, who's known for coaching Michael Phelps. He's been part of the USA national team. What did you learn from him working with him? Uh, yeah, it was really great to get the opportunity to work with him. And um, that was one of the reasons it was such an honor to take the job. And uh, yeah, I think the... The one thing that uh, Coach Bowman is particularly good at is um, really training the engine of the body and um, really getting a lot out of, uh, you know, because when we were focused on the math, for example, 
um, with my coach, we were looking at things like the stroke count and the tempo and um, the number of kicks we're taking off each wall. Um, and, and what was great about those is those are things that the, uh, the swimmer can control or be aware of. You know, the swimmer is not necessarily going to be paying attention to or, or thinking about their lactic acid levels and how they're buffering it or, you know, um, various systems that are happening inside your body. And, but they can be aware of their stroke count or their stroke rate. But um, Coach Bowman is really, um, really a master at um, working the ener- different energy systems of the body and getting the body to really, um, the overall engine, what I call the central system of the body to really go through stress and adaptation for peak performance. And um, that was something that I really enjoyed, um, you know, learning from Coach Bowman. Mm. And it seems that you've been on uh, a learning journey almost your whole life and uh, just looking into your history you, you lived in Chile and you learned Spanish and then you you studied and worked in Switzerland working in, in hospitality um, do you feel you're on this um, lifelong journey of learning yes absolutely I think um, like you said that was something you know my coach my um, Arizona coach who um, you know, he passed um, just a few months ago, and so it's great to be able to um, honor him by sharing his story. But um, that was something, you know, was, in, was instilled in me in a very young age was the idea that, that was, that's what life is all about. There's always something more you can learn, always some, some way to grow, to improve. And so, uh, yes, that's something I consider myself a student of life, <laughs> and I always feel like there's more that I can learn. And uh, And each time I do, I feel like I can you know, to help, it helps me in, in every area of my life. And of course, you've got a, a, a big life lesson coming up soon when you become a mother. Uh, yes, so. I, from what I've been told, the biggest challenge of my life, and I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. So with juggling all of these things, of course, you, you went to Stanford as well and becoming an Olympic champion. What I've learned from speaking to a lot of swimmers are you're all really well at organizing and scheduling. And is that something which is the same for you? Uh, yes, I think to a certain extent, um, you know, growing up, you know, having to balance studies and, you know, in a pretty extensive training schedule, um, learning to manage time wisely and being and effectively using time was something that I think helped me. Uh, in my life outside of swimming. But I think, um, you know, there are a few other things that always kind of come to mind as being even more important. And I think um, learning to perform under pressure is something that I learned in the swimming pool that I'm not sure that I could have learned it in the classroom or in other ways, quite the same. Mm. Uh, You know, having to stand up on the blocks and perform when the gun goes off, no matter, you know, how I'm feeling or what's going on and, and be able to get the most out of excuse me, out of my body at that moment. Um, and I think that's something that I really value from my sport days, um, that I know that whether I'm giving a speech or doing an interview or, or being a coach, whatever the instance, I have this faith in my ability to perform under pressure. And and I think that gives me a confidence in facing very difficult situations. Mm, okay. Um, by the great things that you're saying, it's making me think of other questions. So excuse me if it feels sure, like we're jumping certainly. around. There's no kind of Not chronology at here at the moment. Um, and it's when you were talking about um, being on the blocks. I was watching before our interview your 2000 final 
And when they go down the line and, and they look at how everyone's feeling and they're then announcing all, all of the different people competing. And obviously you had Susie O'Neill, who was the, the great favourite going into that race, and she was looking pretty tense. And then I looked at you and you were smiling. You, you seemed happy. You seemed really relaxed. Was that typical for you? Would you normally be like that? Or was this something different in this final? That's a great question. Um, in international competitions, that was unusual for me. Um, but when I had my best um, performances, that was definitely the case. And I think, uh, you know, growing up in swimming and, and swimming at a national level, I had gotten um, pretty good at, at being able to find that place, that place of happiness and swimming from, uh, you know, kind of that place of appreciation and almost getting out of my own way. Um, but I had struggled with that a lot in international competition and some of my biggest competitions. And so one of the things that we worked on quite a bit at Stanford was how do we put ourselves in the best mental state possible, uh, mental and emotional state, really, um, you know, in that moment of performing that, that allows for optimal performance. And I think, you know, that was um, the best I'd ever done it. <laughs> and I was the happiest and most relaxed. And that's a big part of what I talk about especially for, for young people when I, um, you know, speak to swim teams or schools about the idea of being able to, you know, smile in that moment of pressure and trusting yourself and allowing your body to perform the way you've trained it to perform. And uh, I do think that was why I was able to have the race of my life, which was a really uh, huge breakthrough performance for me. Mm. It's interesting you talk about that, actually. I'm reading a book at the moment by Amit Katwala called The Athletic Brain, How Neuroscience is Revolutionizing Sport. And the chapter I'm reading, I'm, I'm only about two thirds of the way through. And actually, the, two days ago, I was reading a, a chapter about the state of flow and, and how people can feel when they're in that form of happiness and in that moment where it's the best that they've ever done. When that was happening for you, like afterwards was it almost a feeling was it almost an addictive feeling that you wanted to get back to that state again and have you ever been in that position again do you think yes I have not necessarily in sport um but in in other areas of my life which are much harder to measure <laughs> and um you know I don't get a medal for <laughs> for different parts of my professional life now but um it was, it was an incredible feeling and it was an incredible awakening for me. I think um, the best way I can describe it, and it sounds very similar to what you're reading about in your book, is that the, uh, in the book you're reading is that um, the idea of getting out of, I was getting out of my own way and that so often I wanted to perform well so badly that I would actually <laughs> hold myself back. Mm -hmm. And what I really needed to do was just be in a state of being completely present, actually enjoying and appreciating where I was and knowing that I had done all the work that I could do and, and then just allowing myself <laughs> to do the best that I could. And, you know, and I see that in my, in my life all the time, you know, when I get in the zone as a coach and everything just clicks, and I know the right thing to say, and I'm tapped into my intuition. I'm tapped into all the knowledge that I have. And, um, you know, and I, I can really, you know, there's no ego involvement. There's no, um, attachment to any past knowledge. It's just in the moment I'm using all the knowledge, all the experience, and then also I'm able to respond to the athlete with exactly where they are at this moment. And I think 
you know, as a coach, that takes a special skill to be able to do that, to be in that moment and, and actually, you know, make the best decision based on everything that I know rather than, oh, this is what's worked in the past or, um, you know, or, or this is what I really want to work. <laughs> what is actually going to work best for the athlete in this moment? And I think, um, you know, and, and likewise with, you know, giving a speech with an audience when I'm, you know, standing in front of a company of, of top executives and they're looking at me like, who, who does, what does this swimmer know or how can she help me? And being able to be in the moment and read the audience and share the best of what I have to offer, um, you know, based on, on that moment is um, something that I often strive for. And, thankfully still get to experience probably not quite as heightened as you know being in an olympic final where everything's condensed into a matter of a couple of minutes and you know i do miss that part Mm -hmm. (laughs) the purity of the moment in sport um but i do get to get a chance to use that same concept and and i can certainly tell the difference you know i get down from giving a talk and i can tell if it was an a plus talk because i was in the zone (laughs) and in the moment or you know that was an a minus i probably you know, was a little too worried about this or, you know, trying to, you know, impress this, or maybe I was uh, fearful that they wouldn't, um, you know, be, they weren't on the same page as I was and that affects your performance. And so um, it's, it's fun to have that opportunity to, um, you know, really try to get to that space as far as, you know, and I think when it, when you talked about, you know, my life of learning, I think one thing that's always really inspired me is that idea of human potential and what we're capable of. And it doesn't matter if you're in sports, sports is just a great way to see it. You know, it's a great Mm. illustration of human potential, but you know, all of us in our lives have opportunities every day to try to be the best us we can be. And, um, you know, and so that's what, you know, especially when I'm talking to kids, I'm saying, that's what you're learning about when you're swimming. It's not so much about whether you make it to the top of the podium. It's about what you learn about being your best self, you know, the emotional part, the mental part, the physical part, you know, the work, of course, you know, <laughs> the work is, is, is always has to be there. You know, so you have to learn the work ethic, but there are a lot of other nuances that I think are really fun to get to tap into and exciting. Mm. You mentioned that before those Olympic games, that there was some work done on the mental side at Stanford. Are there any specific techniques or, or anything which they did that you could share with us? Oh, certainly. Uh, we worked with a gentleman named Richard Diana, who worked with some other professional um, athletes. Um, and he really taught us that there were two different frames of mind that we could be in when we stand up there behind the blocks is our optimal state of mind or what he called our learned state of mind. And he taught us about our learned state of mind is often, and I think many, many people have experienced this is that, you know, we all have kind of a coping mechanism that we go to when we get into a situation when we're afraid or we don't feel confident and we have some kind of emotional or physical things that we do. Um, For example, for me, I get kind of emotional I feel something in my stomach physically. I kind of feel nauseous, you know, and what, uh, what Richard Diana helped us to do is kind of observe and recognize the characteristics of our learned state. So we could know that we're there. And what he helped us to do is switch to our optimal state. Cause he also helped us to recognize and be aware of what happens to us when we're in our best state to perform. And for me, it was, I was not emotional at all. Um, one of the great characteristics I learned was that when I'm in my best frame of mind, I'm inner auditory, which means I hear 
the words or what I'm going to do inside my head. I don't have to say them out loud. Um, when I'm in my learned state, I'll be like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And I almost am like trying to talk myself into it. And if I have to talk myself into it, I know <laughs> I'm never going to get there. But when I know I'm going to win in my head, I'm like, okay, it's a very simple, like matter of fact, okay, I'm going to go, you know, do this number of kicks, this number of strokes, I'm going to go do my race. And there's not a lot of emotion there in terms of the actual um, act of what I'm doing. And so what we did was we practiced switching from our learned state to our optimal state. And that was really one of the most valuable skills um, that I learned. And we, you know, and I was able to do it in practice. So, you know, there are some practices where I was really tired and maybe my cook. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. She told me, okay, we're going to do this set, and I was, it was really a challenge. I wasn't sure if I could do it. I would have the tools and try to use the things that Richard Diana had taught us, excuse me, to switch. And thankfully... We worked on it for so long. We started working on it my freshman year. I was a junior when I went to the Olympics. I had worked on it so much that I was able to switch at the ultimate moment and, and be in the zone and, um, you know, and have, have that experience. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's a very powerful tool and something I use in my coaching as well. Um, and I think even, you know, I, I've taught that same concept to um, you know, swimmers as young as 10 that, that can tell them. And we even use, you know, one example I used is, um, you know, some, some young swimmers are really hard on themselves and it's sometimes hard for them to take criticism. And so when you try to coach them, they might get kind of tied up and in their own way. And I worked with one young swimmer on this and we had a code word and her code word was banana. And she would recognize, okay, I'm going into my learned state and this is not good. And her mom even knew because we worked on it together, said, okay, banana. And then she'd be able to relax and calm herself and switch so that she could get through whatever was giving her the challenge at the moment. Mm. Have you got any funny code words that you use in any situation? <laughs> no, um, mine is more of the kind of the concept of switching. I tried to have a color or a word, but for me, it was just the idea. Um, so the word switch <laughs> is really what I 
I guess that would be kind of the code word, but it's more just the idea of like, oh, I'm in my learned state. Let me, let me calm down. Let me see how I can switch to my optimal state. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We're going to return to the conversation with Misty in just a moment, but I wanted to give you a little bit of breaking news. Yes, the Best in the World with Richard Parr podcast is going to be trying some crowdfunding. Yes, have you heard of Patreon? Well, Patreon is a crowdfunding website which helps creators such as myself continue to support the projects that they love. And I absolutely love doing the best in the world with Richard Parr. I love learning from the very best sports stars on the planet. The Olympic champions, the world champions, the world record holders, the world number ones. And I want to continue to do this. But of course, to do it, I need some money. I need some support to pay for the editing, to pay for some transcribing, to pay for the the general web searching and all of the emails and the time it takes to get the amazing guests on the program. And so what Patreon does is it gives you an opportunity to make regular monthly contributions so we can continue to make the best in the world with Richard Parr. And it starts from as little as a dollar a month and there will be different tiers of how you can continue to support the show. And of course, as the tiers go higher, as the rewards get higher and we give a little bit of something back to you as well as the best in the world with Richard Parr every single week. We'll be launching it on August the 1st, 2017. It'll be at patreon.com. We'll make sure that we put the exact link to that page when it goes live on August the 1st at patreon.com. We'll put that link on our Facebook page, on our Twitter page, on sportachino.com, everywhere where you would normally look for the best in the world with Richard Parr. We'll probably put a link to it on the ACAST page as well. But if you get a moment just to continue to support this program with a $1 contribution or more, I would really appreciate it. So we'll bring you more details of that when it launches on August the 1st. All right, let's return to the conversation with the Olympic swimming champion, Misty Hyman. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We're talking about turning into your optimal state and we're talking about how you're feeling at the blocks. Why don't you give us an idea, a little bit of what your process would be, what routines you might have leading up to a race, say from the night before to to the morning before a race. What what are the kind of things that you would do? Did you have any superstitions in fact? Um no, I mean I think when I was younger I certainly did. I had a favorite towel that I always had to have for the finals or have you still got that towel? I do, of course. <laughs> um, you know, but when it, you know, when I was a little bit older, I didn't necessarily have the same, you know, it wasn't a towel, it wasn't, but it was uh, definitely a routine. Um, the night before my races, I would usually take time and I had a stretching routine that I would always do. And I would listen to, you know, some of my favorite music, um, usually calming music as opposed to pump up type music. And I would um, visualize my races. So um, based around the numbers that my coach and I had learned. So how many kicks, how many strokes, and I would see myself executing my race the next day exactly as we had practiced it. And then, you know, in the morning, 
Um, same kind of thing. Just go through kind of the eating breakfast, the stretching. Usually had a, a, a fairly kind of a routine thing that I always did for warm up and a process to get ready for the race where it was not so rigid that if something were to happen, I would get flustered, but a general outline of a similar preparation the night before and the morning of, and even going into the warm up. And then right before the race, after warm up and everything, I'd go again by myself in a corner, listen to my music, do my stretching and visualize my race just one last time. And you mentioned breakfast there. What was typically your, your diet? What, what was that like around the time when you were competing? Sure. Um, we were, we were very much, I think what is more common now. Um, we were very much just well-balanced, um, high protein, uh, fruits and vegetables and, and complex carbs. So I would do, you know, the day of my Olympic race, I had scrambled eggs, fresh fruit and oatmeal. Mm. And it was really, you know, mostly common sense. There wasn't anything too, um, too fancy about it. Just trying to avoid, you know, uh, simple sugars and artificial stuff. So I had an all natural kind of protein bar that I used. Mm. And what about cheat days? Were you allowed cheat days? Did you want cheat days or was it just all about working to what you were trying to achieve? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think I, that's one thing going back and learning now as a coach, um, that I wish I would have allowed myself or would have learned (laughs) was the idea of, the importance of cheat days and the importance of recovery days. And uh, I think growing up, you know, I really prided myself on always working hard and doing everything I could. And, um, you know, sometimes saw cheat days or rest days as a waste of time, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think that that was detrimental. Um, I think it certainly backfired in some ways for me in my career. And uh, sometimes, you know, you never know, and I have no regrets or anything like that. But looking back, that's something I definitely would have told myself, you know, to enjoy the rest because the rest is as important as the work and to take some time to um, kind of enjoy life along the way and not be so hard on yourself. Um, I think um, that could have made my career even um, more sustainable um, as an athlete. And so I definitely, you know, I think there's always a balance. The work is super important. And I think that was one of my strengths, but I think at a certain point when I got too obsessive about the work, it became a detriment. And so that's something I certainly try to make sure my swimmers understand that, you know, you do have to work hard and you have to work harder than most other people are willing to work. But then you also have to know when it's time to relax and enjoy or know when it's time to recover so your body can come back even stronger. Mm, yeah, the the sacrifices you you have to give to to become a champion, and you you've been retired for quite a while now. When when you did retire, um, how difficult a decision was it, and how difficult was the adjustment? Ah, uh, yes. So the decision itself probably was was not as hard as I thought it would be. I remember walking onto the pool deck at the U.S. Open. Um, in December of 2004, and I heard a voice inside my head that said, as soon as I walked onto the pool deck, it said, I don't belong here anymore. And I literally looked around, like looked behind me as if somebody else had said it outside of me because I couldn't believe that, you know, that would come from inside of me. And it was really a a shock for Mm -hmm. me because my whole life I'd really loved swimming. Of course, there were challenges and all sorts of things, but I'd always just loved swimming. And my 
passion and fire had always been, you know, how fast can I be? How can I get to the Olympic podium and that sort of thing? And so whenever I had in the past walked onto the pool deck for the first time, particularly at a large meet, I would walk out and see the pool and get excited and get motivated and, you know, wondering, you know, and, and I would be a, a certain kind of almost coming home to something I, I know so well and that I love. And uh, that was the first time that I really felt that, wow, okay, maybe I've done everything I've, I've wanted to do in this sport. Maybe I've learned everything that I wanted to learn from the sport. And now my passions lie elsewhere. And, uh, you know, and, and facing that was, was a challenge for sure. But I don't think it was such a stark difference from what I had felt most of my swimming career that it was clear that I couldn't ignore it, <laughs> you know, mm. that I couldn't, I couldn't pretend like I still, you know, I, my, my coach felt like physically I had had shoulder surgery um, in 2001 that set me back a couple years. And by 2005, we thought, okay, you know, we'll be on track for 2008. Um, physically, I could do it, but, um, but emotionally and mentally, I was really um, ready to pursue other dreams outside of the pool. And, um, you know, so there was certainly a period of time that I was mourning the, uh, the loss of my former self, my former identity, this person that I had always known myself to be this swimmer. <laughs> it was such a part of my identity and what I did and who I, who I was, I had to mourn you know, the, the death of her in a way. And I also, I think the hardest part was then, like you said, that transition is, you know, giving birth to this new person that I didn't really know exactly, <laughs> you know, who she was. And, um, and it definitely took some time and I had to give myself the space to kind of explore, you know, that, you know, I'd never had free time before. What do I like to do with free time? <laughs> you know, what, you know, what other dreams and passions do I want to pursue and what is the path towards that? I mean, the one thing about swimming is it was always pretty clear. Here's the next step, you know, okay, you're a 10 year old swimmer and you're trying to make state championships. And then you're a 12 year old swimmer and you're trying to make junior nationals. And there's always a clear like progression of, okay, what are our next steps towards our goal? And here I was starting at the beginning <laughs> in a way in the, this next chapter of my life where the structure wasn't as obvious and there wasn't a coach to say, hey, hey here's what we're going to do. We're going to work hard and we're going to get there. I had to kind of become my own coach in a way and create that structure for myself and give myself the room to realize that, you know, I was starting at the bottom again in a lot of ways. Mm. <laughs> so it was, it was a very interesting thing. I think, um, probably the, the thing that helped me most and was that, uh, you know, I wanted to get started in a professional career. And in some ways I was very advanced. I, I traveled all over the world. I had, you know, been on the Today Show. I had spoken in front of thousands of people. And so, you know, in some ways I was 25 years old, but, and I was ahead of my peers because of all these life experiences and, you know, the swimming, the things that I'd learned, but in other ways I was really far behind, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't had a real job. I hadn't, you know, I never babysat. I never lifeguarded. I was always swimming. And so I knew that there were lots of skills that I had that would be helpful, but I also knew that there were other areas that I just, it wasn't that I couldn't do them. It just was that I never had any experience. And so I knew I needed to kind of balance that equation. If I wanted to be successful, I had to catch up. <laughs> and, and so I had to give myself the space, um, the time and the space to really um, take some of the pressure off because I think there's a tendency when you make it to the top of one field to feel like, well, gosh, I should be on top when I jump to the next one. But life doesn't work that way. You can, you have to stop, start at the bottom and build your way up again, no matter who you are. And mm -hmm. so, 
you know, when I started, I, I, I lived in, in the Caribbean in St. Croix and I, I worked at a, at a resort as an intern and worked in all the departments because I just knew I needed to learn, you know, kind of normal job skills. <laughs> and, uh, and the way I, I kind of justified it to myself, I think part of the reason I went to the Caribbean is like, well, if I have to catch up, I want to do it someplace really fun yeah. and, and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And the, you know, and so it was a lovely place to do that. And, but on the other hand, uh, you know, going to a workplace and dealing with managers and different personalities, you know, swimming is very solitary. You know, it's you and your coach and it's you and the water. And it's much simpler. It's much more black and white than life. <laughs> and so um, I really had to get used to kind of a whole different way of thinking about, you know, success, about moving through the world. Um, you know, cause swimming, you know, while challenging is also much simpler. <laughs> and so I would actually remind myself, okay, in, in this next phase of your life, you're just a 10 and under swimmer. You're imagine you're 10 <laughs> and these are the skills you have to learn. So don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> you're going to learn these skills now. And then I'd kind of see myself graduating because of course I'd pick them up quickly, but you know, I hadn't really done them before. So then I would kind of set some new challenges for myself. Okay. Now you're 11, 12 swimmer. And I, in my head and over the last 10 years since I retired I've gradually worked my way back up <laughs> to where I feel like um, you know I'm at that professional level again but I had to kind of go through all the steps of that um, you know <laughs> but I modeled it after what I learned from my swimming is that you can't go from being a 10 year old to being you know the high school superstar you have to go through all the phases of learning <laughs> so were there ever those days when you were working there despite it being lovely weather despite it being in a beautiful place but when you're doing a job or there's something which you don't really want to be doing or learning were there moments where you were just like I'm an Olympic champion swimmer what am I doing here did you ever think like that <laughs> I, I think occasionally I did but I think part of it was I knew that, yeah, I think there was a certain point when I retired from my swimming career that, you know, I knew that there was a lot more to life than swimming. And as much as it had given me and as much as it had made me who I, who I was, I knew there was a lot more of me I wanted to discover. And so I think that helped me to get through those moments because of course it was challenging to be like, well, you know, a couple of years ago, I was on the red carpet at the ESPY Awards, and now I'm, you know, taking out garbage or serving, you know, serving drinks and that sort of thing. But I think it was a really important um, process for me, um, not only of, you know, humbling myself, but also um, kind of learning, uh, you know, how to, in a way, be a civilian. <laughs> like, mm. you know, it's not the right word. Um, that's, yeah, I don't like the connotations of that, but the uh, the idea of switching to this kind of normalcy that that I really hadn't known most of my life, and I think not that there's really such a thing as that, but what I found, and I think what was so valuable, was the idea that uh, you know people liked me not because I was such a great swimmer, but because I was me, mm. and I think that was a big part of my journey after swimming because my identity was so wrapped up in my success as a swimmer, and um, what I learned, especially in St. Croix, was that, oh, people like me because I'm a good person or I'm cheerful or I'm happy or I'm, you know, these other characteristics that I discovered that didn't have anything to do with my success as a swimmer. And, um, and after, you know, a time of being there on a small island and making friends, you know, it wasn't a big deal. People were like, oh, yeah, I miss you won a gold medal. But that's not really, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like the main thing that 
you know, people thought about me. And, um, and I think I really needed a space to learn that. Who am I besides this swimmer? And so I think in a way, um, you know, not feeling like, oh, well, I'm a gold medalist and I, you know, why should I have to do this kind of work? It was actually really um, empowering <laughs> to mm. know that I can do this work and I'm not, um, I'm not tied to this identity, um, you know, that, yeah, I was, I was tied to something deeper of who I am, but no matter what I'm doing, I am this person, <laughs> you know, it's not based on my performance or my talents. Mm. Well, that, that's, that's an amazing insight. And uh, that's, that's incredible to see that you've, you've, you learned a lot swimming and then you need to learn a lot afterwards and use it. Were there many skills from your swimming career that you think then helped this process? I know you said about starting from scratch, but do you think that because of swimming, you were able to kind of accelerate your improvement because of swimming? And, and if so, were there any techniques or strategies that you used? Um, yes, I definitely think that there were things that helped. I think one of the things was um, being willing to take a risk. I think, um, you know, one of the things that my coach also taught me, he was always a big innovator and that was kind of where we threw the science in, but, you know, being able to do something different um, than maybe everybody else is doing, you know, I always think it was really valuable for me to move to a Caribbean Island for three years. And it was as much a part of my professional development as it was a part of my personal development to transition from this life I had known to, you know, who I wanted to be in the future. And, you know, I kind of just went, I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> you know, I had a, I had a job lined up and I rented a place and I, I moved by myself, you know, and, and some people thought I was crazy, but I had, I had this sense that this is what I need for my, you know, for my next step. This is what I want to experience. And, um, you know, and I think swimming gave me the confidence and the courage to do that. And I think that came from my coach, um, a lot of that. And so, yeah, I think it was one of the best things that I did for myself. Um, you know, so that confidence and courage to know that, Hey, I can go anywhere and try anything. And you know, even if I fail, I know I can land on my feet and I can figure it out. Um, and, and not that I have to do everything that, you know, I don't have to just go right away and get a, a regular nine to five and start working my way up. I can, I can take this detour and it's actually going to get me farther. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the other thing I noticed is that, you know, the, I love working hard, you know, <laughs> I really enjoy working hard and, um, and working a lot, <laughs> you know, and sometimes I have to be careful because I can have tendencies of being a workaholic, but um, the joy of the work and the process um, is something that I learned from swimming that I think is invaluable and something that I know helps me in everything that I do that, you know, I'm just, that work part seems normal. It seems like that's an everyday part of life. Work is the fun part, <laughs> you know, not so much what you're working towards, but the actual work itself. Mm. Well, I'm glad in that answer you spoke about innovation because it saves me from asking you about uh, the, your innovative underwater dolphin kick and everything like that. I think you've answered the question on that. It's interesting how some of the, the, the top people I've spoken to on the best in the world, people such as the rugby player David Campisi, such as yourself, uh, people who've achieved success, but you've also kind of revolutionized the sport by some of the things you do. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, it's been really good to speak to you today, Missy. Thank you so much for your time. Just before you go, can you let us know how we can continue to follow you and, and learn your journey online or on social media or anything like that, please? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for a great interview. I really enjoyed speaking about it. 
Um, you can follow me at mistyhyman.com, M-I-S-T-Y-H-Y-M-A-N.com, and on Twitter at Misty Hyman. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to um, continue to post and share my journey here. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Good luck with the the baby and becoming a mother. I'm, I'm sure you'll be fantastic. And that's a very exciting time for you. Misty Hyman, thank you for being the best in the world. <laughs> thank you very much, Richard. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. The swimmers never disappoint on the best in the world with Richard Parr, do they? It's another fantastic chat we've just had there with Misty Hyman. And if you've enjoyed that conversation, maybe go back and listen to some of the other swimmers we've had. In fact, our first ever swimmer was Nick Gillingham. That was way back. That was, I think that was episode seven or at least in one of the first ten. Is that long ago, but that's an amazing chat. Go back and listen to that. We've also had fantastic conversations with Rebecca Sony. We've spoken to Stephanie Rice. We've spoken to Natalie Coglan, Nathan Adrian. They've all been on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. So if you are an aspiring swimmer or just someone with an interest in the sport or just want to learn from the very best, go back and listen to those episodes on our back catalogue. They're all at acast.com forward slash best. They're also on iTunes. They're all there. And to make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe to our iTunes page. And if you get a few moments, give us a rating and review. I would really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. As I mentioned earlier, please check out our Patreon page when it goes live on August the 1st. But of course, until then, next week, we've got another amazing athlete who we're going to learn from who's either an Olympic champion, a world champion, a world record holder, or a world number one. You'll just have to wait until next week to find out who exactly it is. All right, but until then, I hope you have a wonderful week. I've been Richard Parr. Goodbye for now. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.